But you do all that and you look at your board and they look back at you and they're not sure what to do from there. They, they're looking at you and you're just thinking, I don't care what happens right now. An atomic bomb could go off outside this room. I am not going to be the next one to open my mouth. Professional municipal managers think about ethics, and in particular, the ICMA code of ethics, which guide their profession. Although the term neutrality is never mentioned in the tenets, it is a foundational idea, or shall we say ideal, in the management of local governments. The pioneering change community is about informal conversations on evolving ideas in local government management. And today our guests, Matt Canlin and Dave Proboka, two professional managers, juxtapose their perspectives to give us a clear picture of how the concept of neutrality plays out, or doesn't, in real time. I asked Matt and Dave on the show because I know them to be particularly articulate on this issue, and they are willing to explore how their views converge and diverge. As they acknowledge near the close of the episode, some of the nuances in their understanding may come from where they are at in their professional journey, or perhaps their peer generation. All the more reason to have this conversation. My hunch, after listening to the show again, is that everyone in this conversation comes out with a slightly different view from where we started. That is the nature of great conversation and why we should not be shy about learning from one another's perspectives. The great lesson here is that this becomes possible when we are able to find the sweet spot of language that allows us all to engage without feeling excluded from the conversation. The show notes highlight some quotes in the episode and provide links where you can learn more information about our guests. You will also find links to Matt Cannon's articles on topics related to ethics for the ICMA PM magazine. My name is Nancy Hess. I am creator of this podcast. And as always, if you are interested in knowing more about the Pioneering Change community, sign up for our newsletter via the link in the show notes. So let's get started. I'd like to just start by thanking you both for being here. And I was saying to Dave when he came on that, that my head is still trying to wrap itself around some of these ideas. And so I'm going to really lean on both of you heavily in terms of your perspectives and understanding of this. I do have some thoughts of my own just from my experience of interacting with municipalities. So I can imagine from other perspectives how that can feel as members of the community or otherwise working as an employee within the municipality. But I am most interested in in your perspective of what it is like as a professional municipal manager. So both of you in my conversations have expressed ideas about this, and I see a common ground, and I also see some variations in the way you think about it. So I wanted to start out, if you would, just by, before we get into sort of a closer examination of what neutrality might mean more broadly for the profession, what it means actually to you personally and from your experience, what is it that you care about with respect to this idea or concept of neutrality. And I'm going to open it up to either one of you if you'd like to begin. Go ahead, Dave. Go for sure. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for having us on this. And I'm looking forward to it. I've been really excited about this. And I'll say that when it comes to my perception of neutrality and presumably where Matt is, I think we are really aligned in this. I mean, I think whatever kind of divergence, as you pointed out, exists is subtlety that is 
meaningful. That's why we're having this discussion. But far and away, your lockstep, shoulder to shoulder on the importance of management neutrality and being apolitical and being perceived to be that way by the community that you serve. So that's critical. When I think about neutrality and what it means to me, I think objectivity is absolutely important. You need to be able to very consciously and proactively drown out your bias. Of course, that's easier said than done. And I'm not just talking about political bias either. I mean, there, there's bias that affects us uh, in every decision that we make and being able to, particularly in the context of presenting elected officials with policy options, being able to set that aside and developing strategies to maintain that neutrality, I think is essential to our service to the community as well as to our ability to serve the profession the best. So that's important, but also social intelligence. You have to have a high degree of awareness of how we talked about, I talked about bias, but how that bias is perceived by others, how they react to it and respond to it. And then in turn, how you counter that response. We are a complex uh, system of beings in society, and we need to operate with that understanding that things are not always in the black and white or, or in that kind of Venn diagram space that, that uh, we've had some discussion about before. So we need to be able to look at situations in unique perspective because every circumstance is different. Every policy, every issue is different, and you're not going to be able to adopt a one-size-fits-all approach. I agree with everything Dave said. I guess the only thing I would add, I won't repeat some things he said, the only thing I would add is one of the problems that, that the framers of the council manager forum were trying to solve was this lack of trust that had developed in local government. And a lot of it had to do with patronage. The idea that elected officials were using their positions to benefit certain people and not other people or lighting their pocket or whatever the motivation was. It wasn't sincere. It, was, it had a deviousness, a maliciousness to it. And what the result of that was a breakdown in trust. So the public was no longer trusting in its local officials. So one of the objectives of the council manager for is to develop, cultivate, and promote trust. And that's one of the main reasons political neutrality is so important is the public has to be able to look at the manager and have a level of confidence that he or she is doing what they're doing based on what's in the best interest of the community or kind of the Joe Friday, just the facts, man. To a certain extent, they're the ones providing all of the different options that they're, you can have trust in that manager. The politicians are going to engage in the political process, which is good. By the way, I don't think it's a bad thing. The political process is a good thing. It's just that politicians tend to choose to serve those people who vote for them, maybe a little more than those who don't vote for them. And the manager is supposed to be the one responsible for the day-to-day -day affairs and making sure that the services are provided in a fair, equitable way. So I think trust is the other thing I would add to what Dave said is polit political neutrality cultivates trust. I want to inject at this point, because this is, I think, personal to me. When I began this work, it was back in the 80s. And I would say that was prior to some of the polarization that we're experiencing now. And I remember specifically driving out to East Tempfield Township in Lancaster County, and it was all farmland. And there was this little single building sitting in the middle of the field. And George Marchenko was the township manager. 
And I was working with him. So we were working on HR things, but I was listening and learning and interviewing people. And I was finding out that there was this, this idea of a professional model for management and that he was following that line of thinking. The professionals there, they were encountering this pressure to develop. And if you think back at that time, this is just my recollection, and it could be, it has shaped my ideas over the years, but I saw this as a real positive that the elected body came together and there was like a lot of different things that could have happened in that township. And they really had to, and they did lean on the staff to make recommendations. And it got in my head, and you can disabuse me of this idea, but I got it in my head that the professional staff hired oftentimes influence policy direction because the elected body is saying, we're not sure when they wouldn't actually say we're not sure, but they might not have necessarily all the tools to put together to say what means good development. They might have an idea that they're going to develop, but they're not sure exactly what means good development. So I saw the professional staff as, uh, as being somewhat influential in the direction of, of policy. And I'm not saying that there, it was political or partisan, but it was, but it, it could be. Right. I think we've all been there as managers before. And this, this is like the, the, that nightmare that you have, the recurring nightmare, whatever profession you have, where you're in the room full of people and you're in your underwear or something. This is that moment for managers. We're at, you're at a public hearing, maybe just as a hypothetical on an ordinance, you got a room full of people, maybe it's divided, maybe the room is unified in their opposition to whatever the policy is. And you've done your job as a manager. This is, I think, just uh, as a side note, one area where Matt in his article, Public Management Magazine in August, one of the areas that he really hits it on the head. We develop these alternatives. We provide those to the elected officials, to the policymakers. That is one technique and strategy that's important in our arsenal to maintain that neutrality that we talked about. But you do all that and you look at your board and they look back at you and they're not sure what to do from there. They, they're looking at you and you're just thinking, I don't care what happens right now. An atomic bomb could go off outside this room. I am not going to be the next one to open my mouth. This is your time now. And they're looking at you thinking, boy, if we could just get some kind of a body language sign or something about where we should be on this, or maybe. So it becomes this game of chicken in some respects where it's like, who's going to, who's going to turn first? So no, I don't think it's, I don't think you're wrong in, in that assessment. I've been there personally. I'm sure Matt and others in this profession have where you're almost forced to inject that subjective bias in that discussion. And otherwise you wind up at a stalemate. Does that answer your question? Yes. Yeah. What do you, Matt? That I, I agree with what Dave said. It's, you know, I think I mentioned this to you in Clovis, Nancy, but years ago, someone came up and asked me, what's one of the most important characteristics of an elected official? And I've always believed this. I believe this way back when, and I still believe it today. One of the most important characteristics is restraints. You've been given an office, you've been given authority to decide things. And one of the most important characteristics is sometimes you have to restrain yourself and sometimes no decision is the right decision, or at least making a decision very carefully, but to restrain yourself. And I think it's a, it's an important characteristic for managers as well. Dave's right. I mean, sometimes you'll get in those situations where that the board or the council wants you to tell them what to do. And there sometimes isn't a pull, an impulse in the interest of efficiency and just to get things going to tell them that. 
And while that's not always wrong, probably the better way is to give them options. Say, well, you could do this. You could do that. You could also do this. And it takes a little more time, but ideally you're giving them options to help them make the decisions that they were elected to make. So I, I think that idea of restraint for a manager is an important characteristic that we need to pay attention, just like elected officials. Mm -hmm. This reminds me of the interview that Ernie McNeely and I did a few weeks ago. And one of his advice to young managers was to don't be afraid. I'm not going to get the words exactly right, but it was something like, don't be afraid to step back and let your elected officials hash it out. Like that's their job. Don't be afraid to give them that space. And I think that kind of fits in with your advice to that. And let me say, Nancy, I haven't always followed that perfectly. I mean, there's been plenty of times. In fact, there was even a situation last night in one of our meetings where I'm thinking about it. Did I make a big blunder? No, I don't think so. But I probably could have handled something a little differently to allow them more hashing out as opposed to inserting myself. So it's almost more art than science. So you can, there's so many other kind of factors to consider on whether you're going to insert yourself or not. 100%. And, and this is tough for us as managers, because I think one common trait, if there is one that you'll find, and not just municipal management, but you know, managers or leaders in any organization, is that we are there for a reason. We're there because we have opinions about things that we believe that there's a certain way, maybe not the only way, not that we're claiming a monopoly on the truth or anything like that, but that we feel confident in our ability to guide our organizations. And so it's tough to exercise that restraint you're talking about. I know personally, I love to hear myself talk. Nobody loves to hear me talk, but <laughs> I do. So I have had to very consciously, very profoundly get myself in a place where I just can sit and be quiet. In fact, if you look at my desk right now, there's a post-it note that I have right on it. It just says, shut up and listen. That's what we have to do sometimes. I, I have to work on that. And I think Matt just articulated the same. And it is just one of those areas that's a constant struggle because sometimes we feel like we're the, the navigator on the Titanic where you're watching the ship careen towards that iceberg. And it's not, you're not at the helm. You're not making the calls. You're not turning the boat. You can tell the captain, hey, there's an iceberg dead ahead. But if they say, hey, you know what? I think we're good or it probably won't be as bad as it looks. You have to live with that because at the end of the day, they're the policymakers, they're the decision makers, and we'll have to adapt. Of course, we'll have to deal to some degree with any fallout from it. But we've set our piece. We've made our recommendations. And now it's their turn to, to operate in the space that, that they're given. So all there is to that. I think something I have learned from working with managers is that there is this line of sight between a project that maybe enticed them to come on board, or let's say they came on board and the project emerged, but there's this line of sight between the project and progress. They really see this as part of the this trajectory of the municipality and that they're steering. And there's this precarious place where the manager gets out ahead. And then suddenly there's good guys and bad guys on the elected body because there's pushback. There's suddenly some objections to something that previously had been unanimously supported. Or maybe the community has begun to have questions about it. And I bring this up before we really try to tackle this idea of neutrality. 
because I'm totally sympathetic with that situation where I can feel just how important it is from the manager's perspective to nurture or make sure that this project gets a fair shot because of all the staff time, everything that's been invested. And I think as we look at neutrality, one of the ideas that, that I think about in that regard for the manager is that significant engagement, you can call it community engagement, but it's been brought up. It's one of the tenants, maybe we'll get to it later, I can name the tenant, but it's that communication piece. The role of the manager really is around the engagement and the communication so that when that happens, which it's going to happen, a big project is going to get pushed back. I think it would be interesting before we get into some personal stories to see if we have captured what neutrality actually means in the broader sense. If you were to take a stab at defining it, a working definition, let's just say, not in concrete, but a working definition for our conversation today. Matt, you can start. So Right. I forget who it was. It might have been Oliver Wendell Holmes. I forget who the Supreme Court Justice was speaking about pornography. He said, I can't deny, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. And I think there's some element of that in political neutrality. Sometimes it's a little difficult to nail it down specifically on what it means, but your spidey senses tell you when it's been crossed. So you know when it's up. But I think, I think where it's most pronounced today in our, in 2022, I think it has to do with and I hope we get to this because I think this is a, a big, important issue, is it has to do with engaging in the advocacy of political issues that oftentimes we can't even do anything about anyway. So I'll give you an example. So take the issue of abortion, and I'll use an extreme example. So no one would in their, I shouldn't say this, but most people would agree that a manager probably shouldn't come out and take a position on abortion, Okay. He or she should not go to his board and say, now that this looks like it's going back to the states for, to, for them to determine the legality of it, I think we should take a position as a community and we should be against it or we should be for whatever position. That is, is not being politically neutral. That is engaging in political advocacy. And that's a really extreme example. Right? Most people would agree with that. But then as you start moving across the spectrum, it gets a little more difficult to determine what really is political or partisan and what's not. And I think that's the area where people debate that issue. But that's the way I view it, at least political neutrality today. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with all of that. And just two quick kind of additions, if you will. But one, I'm glad Nancy mentioned the importance of community engagement and communication, because I think that is another mechanism by which the manager can control his or her own biases. Because what we can present to the elected officials and be a sounding board for the community in that regard, it just helps to amplify our ability to be neutral in some of, in some of those situations. But we had talked already a little bit about the importance of neutrality, as Matt pointed out very astutely in the beginning of this podcast, that it reflects on the community's trust of the manager. But there's another side to that where the board has to some degree be able to drown out the partisan rhetoric or the politicization of issues. Matt quoted a Supreme Court justice. I have a good one here that I've always liked. It's Felix Frankfurter, who's also a Supreme Court justice, not the hot dog guy. He says the responsibility of those who exercise power in a democratic government is not to reflect inflamed public feeling, but to help form its understanding. And that's very difficult for an elected official to do not to be swayed by the mood of the room or the squeaky wheel that gets the grease. You have to be able to drown that out 
And in order to do that, you need a manager who can filter that community server, whatever you're hearing on whatever side of the issue, and be able to provide, again, an unbiased, uh, an uninhibited and, and an objective, reasonably objective set of recommendations or subset of the potential policy routes for the board to take and to chew on a little bit. So you almost have to act as both a, a filter of the board to your community and then conversely the community to the board to be able to set aside some of the tension that might be in the room or that might surround a particular issue so that the board can feel free to govern without being swayed by the kind of popular opinion in some respects. If I could add something, Nancy, so but to maybe enlarge the discussion of political neutrality, in the ISME Code of Ethics and in the guidelines that go along with the ethics, it talks about political, never use the word neutrality, but it talks about holding office as a manager as well, that it's inappropriate for an active talent manager to be holding elected office, of course, in his home, in his own community, but also in surrounding communities. And so I want to enlarge on that in just a minute if I can. So I started noticing this about 20 years ago with my kids. So my kids were in school and I think it was, my kids started getting into school in the late nineties. So it was really a pronounced thing. It really started, it's grown to the point where I'd say it's even much stronger than it was back then. And it's this idea of the romanticizing of the activists. Okay. We take, and some of this is, is right and is correct, but I think we've taken it really far. And this idea that each of us needs to be an activist, we need to change the world for the better. Okay. That all sounds very good until you take it to its extremes. So I'm of the generation right after all those folks who joined the Peace Corps and all those folks in the sixties that wanted to engage in some sort of community service. They wanted to serve people. They weren't necessarily trying to change the world other than trying to be of service to people. And this, a lot of us came from John F. Kennedy and asked out your country, all those kinds of things to, to be engaged in serving your community. We took that and we took the 1960s activism, civil rights, and other activism, and we glorified it as it should have been, but then we even took it up to, to a higher level. The reason that's important is now folks who are coming out into the manager field want to be an activist. They want to change the world. They want to improve things. They want to change things. And while I have nothing against that, it's not the role of the manager necessarily to do that. So I'll give you one example. So at the ICMA conference, we were in one of the sessions on ethics and we were having this, almost this same conversation. And one of the managers, there was a newer manager, one of the managers at the table said, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, she says, I think ICMA really needs to lighten up on this ICMA code of ethics because I feel like it's really important for me to express my views and advocate for the issues that I think are important. And she was really talking about abortion, but she said, I think it, it's wrong that ICMA is gagging us. Actually, the word she used was gagging us from not being able to speak our minds. And I really think a lot of that comes from this, this ethic of romanticizing the act. All of us need to be activists. We all need to be changing the world. And I think it gets back to this restraint. Your platform thing that we all use is serve our platform. What do I use my platform for? I mean, that's, that would have never been used 30 years ago. And so we all kind of view ourselves as activating for something. And I think as a manager, you really have to control that impulse because that's not your job. That's not what you're supposed to do. Right. And let's call a spade. That platform is a very different 
dynamic than what was in operation in our society, even 15, 20 years ago with the advent and expansion of social media, because now anybody has a megaphone as soon as they turn their phones on or as soon as they turn their tablets on. So it's so much easier than it was even just a short time ago to advocate in whatever space you deem appropriate and have an audience that is quite literally the world stage. So the people that are in the bullpen right now for management level positions, far and away, only know that paradigm. They, they were born with it. They were raised with it. To them, that is the norm. And we can do one of two things as a profession. And I don't agree with that woman that you were re referencing before, but I don't exactly disagree with her either. And this is where the nuance comes, I think, and probably why we're here beating each other, maybe beating each other up, or maybe will be, I don't know. It's not that we disagree fundamentally on tenet seven or any specific element of the ICMA code of ethics, but it's about what degree we're taking that to recognizing that there's an expectation with that next generation of managers that they're going to be allowed to maneuver in this space, perhaps more so than the men and women that preceded us in our profession and us in our profession as well. So we have to be able to keep two thoughts in our head at the same time here, understanding the importance and emphasizing the importance of political neutrality, but also realizing that it's a very different world that we live in. And there are expectations that the that the next generation of managers will have with respect to their ability to operate in that world. And we need to either do one of two things again, stifle that and say, no, I'm sorry, this is the way it is. And you either adapt to accommodate us, or there's plenty of other jobs out there that I'm sure will be better suited to your needs. If we do that, which is fine, we're resigning ourselves to the reality that we're just not going to be competitive with the best and brightest of the next generations because that we're already inhibiting a very limited sample size of individuals, men and women that are interested in local government as a profession. Alternatively, we can realize that, okay, this is a new social order. We need to be a little bit accommodating within the confines of everything that we just talked about, which is absolutely critical, foundational to professional management. But if we can make just a little bit of headway to that end and a little bit of a compromise, I think will be much more appealing to the next generation. We'll have a lot of interest because we can really do advocacy decide we can really do a lot of good and some of these social issues in our day-to-day -day. we may not get all of the glamour or whatever that's the we're not the influencers of society but we're definitely the boots on the ground and we're definitely making headway in some of these social justice issues that are very front and center to a lot of people not just the younger generations but the older generations as well and so we have to be able to emphasize that make some adjustments on our end where they make sense, don't compromise our core values, and just always continue to refine based on what, uh, what we need to do to survive as a profession. So you're right. I think this is where we probably need to disagree because I think, ironically, I think what you're suggesting, Dave, probably would have worked even better 30 or 40 years ago. So 30, it's one of the fascinating things, go back and look at Democratic and Republican presidential platforms from years ago. And you'll see that, the, so the extreme over here and the extreme over here were like this. Today it's like this. So if I were to say social justice, right off the bat, most people would probably perceive me to be for team red. If I were to say gun rights, most people would perceive me to be a team red versus team blue. So, so the point is that 
the percent. What is political is so much more broad now than it was even 30 or 40 years ago. So I think it's even more important today to be very careful in how you present yourself because there's so many trigger words and trigger issues that people have in their minds that informs them where you stand politically, whether it's accurate or not, is not really even the point, but they feel like they can judge exactly where Matt Cameron is based on just a couple of trigger words that he says. Now, if they do develop that perception of Matt is team blue or Matt is team red, then to a large extent, I'm just alienated potentially half the population. So I think it's even more important today, but you're right, Dave, at the same time, that is far more difficult today. Yeah. I think that this is where my struggle has been recently thinking through this in the Venn diagram that, that I included in the notes. And I don't know if that makes sense to you all, but that sweet spot in the middle of that Venn diagram is the language. So if I'm managing a community and I have people very angry because there's clinics moving in, the fact that you bring up the abortion issue, I think, Matt, is like such a challenge because it's got to be one of the hottest buttons going in our country today. So I can imagine being a city manager and you have clinics that want to move into the town and then you have protests. And I don't know which side the clinic would fall on, but what I would as a manager probably be very quick to start thinking through the lens of safety, thinking through not just what rights might be involved, which you would know as the manager, the process. Dave, in his definition of neutrality is talking about communication and communicating government process, which becomes vital if you've got these organizations moving in in response to these national issues. The element of trust, which you both brought up. And then for Matt, in his looking at from a political neutrality, that means as a manager, I must be very aware of the words I'm using. And be very clear about what it is that we're talking about. We're talking about government process. We're talking about safety. And some of the other issues that I have personally, I'm going to have to park while I attend to the government piece. I can't speak beyond that because I haven't been a manager, but as a, yeah. Go ahead. about words because the words, it's amazing what's happened just in the last 20, 30 years with just words. So, so I could say to my wife, honey, your looks make time stand still. Okay, and that's a compliment. I could say, honey, your looks could stop a clock. Now I've said the exact same thing, technically speaking, but one is an insult and one is a compliment. And so when we're up there speaking about a particular issue, the very language that we use can send all sorts of messages. I think it's really important. And it, again, it's far more art than it is science. And it's far more difficult today than it was 20 or 30 years ago. You've got to be very aware of the words you use because those words can right away trigger all sorts of perceptions and actually even trigger emotions, depending on what words you choose to use. It's like a, a minefield out there when it comes, if you get to certain particular issues, you've got to be really careful what words you use. That's mm -hmm. exactly right. Because there's two things that it, in my opinion, uh, are certainly just a development of the social media movement and just how profoundly impactful it's been in all of our lives. Number one, we've lost the ability to debate. And I mean, we just can't do it. Some of us can in, in certain atmospheres and certain spaces, but it's just not the kind of coffee table discussion on certain issues that it once was prior to the advent of social media. And we just have to realize that as of a fundamental truth. And similarly, or along with that, 
we struggle when we disagree. It's no longer, you know what? You have an opinion, Matt. I have an opinion. And that's how we feel about things. But let's go have a beer and talk about sports. Now it's your opinions differ from mine. And that's the way it is. There's no compromise on this. I feel this way. I'm right. You're wrong. And everything that you say and do now from here until the end of your existence is going to be just another acknowledgement of the fact that you are way wrong on the issue. We have differences of opinion. We have disagreements, vehement disagreements on subjects, particularly when that pertains to local government, because this is where the rubber hits the road. And to be able to have those discussions in what still has to be public meetings, and rightly so, in front of a room full, potentially a room full of hostile residents or residents who disagree amongst themselves or a board who's not completely unified, it then becomes all the more imperative for the manager to be able to communicate these issues and these policy alternatives in a way that doesn't introduce that bias that Matt was talking about. Words matter, absolutely. And the way you frame these policy options to your board matters. It matters to you as a manager, it matters to your community, and it certainly matters to them as elected officials. So just being ever vigilant of that and divorcing the hot button trigger words that Matt was talking about from some of these policy discussions is a good way that you can connect those three circles in that Venn diagram of community, professional management, and policymaker. Mm -hmm. And just to clarify, if, if you are managing a municipality where the elected body takes an activist approach, Matt, then the manager's role is to do the dissemination, all of the things that you would do to make sure that is known, regardless of the fact that you may think they're dead wrong. That's not what they should be doing. Yeah, and I, I, I actually, in those cases, slide under the desk. But, the, <laughs> yeah. but, you know, if, at the risk of getting too esoteric here, let me just try and say something. Because I think the context of where we are right now, I think, is really important. So throughout the history of the world, there's never been a civilization, a free civilization that has had a pluralistic society and was successful at it. Okay, you can take the Romans or the Ottoman Empire or, the, or even the British. Typically, you, it was done by force, okay? And there was always a dominant culture, okay? And the dominant culture kind of imposed itself on all of the other folks. That's how it, quote, worked, okay? Now, some people can look at it and say it didn't really work, but at least that's the way it survived when people were killing each other. In, in, in the United States, we're, going to, we're getting to this point where there is decreasingly a dominant culture and you have a series of cultures that are becoming equal in influence. And they may, they may be diametrically opposed and what they believe is the course of action, or even what's right and wrong. So it, this isn't necessarily happening as much in Iowa as it is like in New York or California, some of these places. But the point is the same. So as a manager, you're put into that environment. And these elected officials are put into this environment where you're trying to balance very challenging differences in viewpoints and understandings and values and objectives. How do you do that? And so it, I think being elected official is far more difficult today than it was 20 or 30 years ago because you're trying to do something that really has never been done successfully. And while the diversity is important, what really is important is we have to figure out a way of unifying our communities around something. And most likely it's going to be an idea, whether it's the Constitution, whether it's the idea that we're all created equal and decoration and pet, whatever it is, we better figure out a way 
of unifying us around something where history teaches us will tear each other apart. So in that context, you thrust the manager who says, oh, now you're saying, manager, don't be political. That's very challenging because everything is political. Almost, and increasingly so, almost everything is becoming political. I think the only thing that's not political is apple pie and motherhood and Chevrolet. But so many things are becoming political that it's making that objective of political neutrality that much more difficult. Yeah. And Chevrolet is becoming political because it's fuel. It's all about what's happening with the gas and are we going electric? And I have seen that play out in strategic planning, the debate in terms of what is what is going to be the future of that municipality. I just- Nothing thought, that Apple Pie lobby is getting stronger by the day. No. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but to go back to this, everything is political. Something that, that has came up at ICMA and a lot of sessions, I've talked to Matt, talked to you about this, and I've talked to Dave about this. It's really- all of you, like th this climate change, okay? So here's a, this is one that we're trying to find the language to say, where is it that we can really all come around and, and understand what it is that we're trying to achieve at the local government level? And I think in some areas, managers have been extremely successful at uh, looking at erosion and things that are happening because of climate change. They're just like addressing it like they do every problem. But I think, Matt, it was you who said, that what do you do when residents come and say, we want to do something about, from an activist, we want to do something about climate change. Here, what can we do? You're our manager, help us. What can we do? <laughs> and so you're in a different place. Right, right. And I think it's so, in the example of ICMA, in, in, in ICMA is trying to prepare managers on how to deal with that, those kinds of situations. It seems to me what we should be is be exposed to a lot of the differing viewpoints on that. So I was in a meeting with some managers and I made this point and a manager looked at me and said, is there a diff is there, are there any other viewpoints on climate change? I said, what? <laughs> I think there's at least three or four viewpoints that I know of right off the top of my head about climate change. And these are viewpoints that people hold dearly and they feel like they can support it with data and reason and all these kinds of things. I don't know who's right or wrong, but the point is we as managers need to be educated and we need to be familiar and proficient in, in these differing viewpoints. So when that person does come up and says, we want to do X, Y, you at least understand where they're coming from. And it may help you help them a little bit better if you didn't have any clue. Like say you're a big believer that climate change is the stupidest thing in the world. It's all made up. And someone comes to you and says what you just said, Nancy, you are going to be ill prepared to try and help them. But if you understand these differing viewpoints, it helps you navigate and it helps you help the elected body navigate some of those challenges. Right. And even uh, to take that a, a, another step too, is to be able to understand what is really behind it. Is it a fundamental philosophical political position on a subject like climate change? Or as I experienced in my last community, is it, are we talking about farmers who are just unable to keep up with the increase in precipitation? Is it a stormwater issue? Is it something within the realm of our influence that we could provide input. Okay, maybe we'll keep the word climate change out of this or the words climate change out of this discussion, at least for the purposes of maintaining that neutrality that we're talking about. But let's talk about what impact that something like that is having in our community. What are we seeing? What are we experiencing? And what can we do within our level of influence? We can't introduce cap and trade legislation. We can't mandate that everybody gets their power from 100% renewable source. We know what we can and can't do. 
we can implement things like stormwater utility fees that'll help us meet our obligations for our MS4 permits and our Chesapeake Bay pollutant reduction strategies and just the need to improve, maintain, and repair our infrastructure or upsize it to accommodate this, to adapt to a changing climate. We know that there are things that are within our level of influence and perhaps the resident that's coming to you that is asking for your help to make some headway in some of these issues, or perhaps the elected official who is brand new or perhaps ran on a platform to address these issues, maybe they don't operate from the same level of awareness. It's our job to bridge that gap. It's our job to help contextualize that argument in something that is, at least to the degree it can be, apolitical, objective as you could possibly frame that discussion, and within our ability to make some influence, to make some headway in that space. This is not your grandpa's local government. I've said this before. Yeah. We are no longer just the level of government that's responsible for paving roads and putting police officers on the street. We're expected in many cases, not all, to have some seat at the table in some of these issues, issues of diversity and inclusivity, issues of climate change. So it's just not enough for us to say, you know what, that's political. I'm going to back out of that one. Now we have to be able to frame the argument in a way that maintains that confidence, but also recognizes that this is a very different place that we live in now than it was 20 years ago. And we need to adjust and adapt to that and be able to respond to our citizens as well as our elected officials with some good policy choices and some things that we may be able to move the needle forward. So Nancy, if I could, so, so Dave said something that I think is, if I were to look on the horizon and say, okay, what is the next kind of area of uh, challenging area of political neutrality? I think it's going to be this idea of localizing national issues. Okay, so, so there's that bumper sticker. And of course, all of these things are motivated by ideas. So remember 20, 30 years ago, you started seeing the bumper sticker that said, think globally, act locally, locally. Yeah. Okay. And the idea was you can't change the world by going all over the world, but you might be able to change the world in your own community. Okay. A very important idea to appreciate because people are now applying that. So if you say, we need to, at the local level, we need to try and attack climate change, or we need to try and deal with civil rights, or we need to deal with gun rights or immigration. There's a number of problems with that. Okay. Number one, that's really us getting out of our lane. We're not equipped to deal with immigration. Let's use immigration because that's the easiest one to illustrate this point. Yeah, it's a good one. So there, there have been communities around the country that have said, we're going to be a sanctuary city. So now they're inserting themselves into a national issue for which they have no way to really effectively deal with. They really can't change it. They don't have the authority to do it. They don't have the tools to do it. But yet now they're inserting themselves into an issue of immigration. And we just saw the whole thing with Martha's Vineyard. They so now Martha's Vineyard is in the midst of a national issue. They're taking all their time and effort dealing with that issue that they have no way of really dealing with. I'm not suggesting it's not an important issue. It should the local government deal with that issue. And you could use it with, there's even communities out West that are called, I forget what they're calling themselves, but essentially it's a gun rights safe zone where they're going to ignore all sorts of gun legislation because they're declaring their community a second amendment haven or whatever they're calling it. Same problem. It, they're not really equipped to handle with that. We have a thing called federalism. So the federal government deals with certain things, the state government deals with certain things, and the local government deals with certain things. And we're going to see our local government meetings and debates heat up to a boil because we're debating, increasingly debating issues about which we can do nothing. And all we're going to do is get everyone riled up 
and we're all going to make our pronouncements, point our fingers at each other, and we're not going to be able to do a single thing about it. So back to the restraint issue, if we could look at and objectively as elected officials, as managers to say, we probably ought to restrain ourselves on this because this is out of our lane and we can't do anything about it anyway. So let's not even debate this issue because it's not our issue. How do you ignore it though, Matt, if you have uh, immigrants that arrive in your city, let's forget about the sanctuary that elected officials determine that you might as a manager not necessarily advise them that way, but that's the way they go. I think from my perspective, it's already here. I don't know from a professional manager standpoint, I don't know other than to put on your other cap and say, all right, here's an issue that I haven't dealt with before. I mean, that's a question I have for both of you. Here's a, here's an issue that I am really not equipped to respond to right now. So what professional manager skill competence kicks into gear? If you're, let's just use the immigration, They're, they show up, they set up camp. You would say, Sarah, you would say, sure. have that. Well, I would say articulation of the consequences of a policy decision. That, and that's just it. Absolutely critical. It talks about providing alternatives to to different things, but also to be able to say to your board, look, if we do X, these are the kinds of things that we might expect. Matt talked about resolutions that were passed by different municipalities around the country proclaiming themselves to be sanctuary cities. And the fallout that we're seeing in front of our eyes on the national media with some of the busloads of illegal immigrants or whatever being transported up to some of these communities, that's a consequence that the elected officials have to be made aware of as they're considering some policy actions in this space. I had an example in Ferguson Township where I was prior to coming to Susquehanna, where I had a a citizen, very well-intentioned and just a lovely person all around who wanted to ban plastic bags. Okay. We had a process in that community where a resident could introduce a referendum through, through a petition process for the board to consider and have a public hearing and consider enactment of. The consequence is this particular policy was advancing through the legislative process was that the Commonwealth appended to a budget bill, essentially a moratorium on local legislation for plastic bags. So my point to my board at the time was this. I know you want to make, you have influence in this space that is historically not a function of local government, but okay, let's say you just want to do something. This is an example where we move too quickly without considering the consequences. And the outcome was not just that we, Ferguson Township, were not able to enact a plastic bag ban, but now no municipality throughout the entire Commonwealth was able to act in, in that space or to do that same thing. So I know it's hyperbolic example, but a meaningful one where well-intended action resulted in also tantamount to taking two steps backward on that particular issue. They need to be made aware of these things. And if they do with full awareness and visibility on a specific issue, they act in that space regardless, that's their prerogative as elected officials. It's incumbent on us as managers to implement and administer that policy. And we got to handle the consequences, unfortunately, or, or fortunately, I guess. We're not in positions where we could say, hey, you know what? I told the board that they did it anyway. Now the consequences fall on their heads. Whatever happens, it's, we can't. We've got we've to continue to react. We have to continue to maintain that professionalism, maintain that professional dissonance, and be able to respond to consequences, even when they're the results of policy recommendations that we didn't make or are going against the recommendations we did. And I think, Nancy, it's in this context that a DEI issue comes in. So DEI, I think, again, depending on where we stand or an issue, it's clearly political. And the question is, is it a national issue? Is it a state issue? Is it a local issue? I think 
probably most people would agree that the local government can probably do the least amount of good in any sort of meaningful scale. There's maybe little things you can do on the edges of maybe trying to within your organization, but trying to resolve civil rights challenges in a nation of 350 million people, if you're going to allow 10,000 different local governments to all try and solve it themselves, that's a problem. We learned that already. We learned it doesn't work. That's why we created a federal government was to try and handle some of these big issues around immigration or around certain rights. And I would throw a civil rights being a primary one. That's where their role was primary. The states also have a role. And I think our role is a lot less than the state and federal. But what are you supposed to do with it? Because now, you're, now you've immersed yourself in DEI. And just by virtue of saying that and explaining it, someone views you as a partic particular political persuasion. You're now identified as team red or team blue. And you could say, I had a conversation with a colleague. Oh, other people have politicized that. Maybe that's true, but we don't get to choose what political issues are political. I mean, we just have to deal with what is. And DEI is a political issue. In fact, it might be one of the primary issues after the economy in the upcoming election. And there's a Supreme Court decision right now at Harvard University on how they're, I mean, it's, it's just a big natural issue. And I think for managers to insert ourselves in that as they Articulately said, there's consequences for that. And I'm not so sure we're going to really like the consequences because we're not equipped to deal with that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think I need probably just a little bit more understanding of when you think about implementing DEI, which I agree is a very political, this goes back to the language in my Venn diagram. It is the label that conveys a set of values, which again, ICMA strongly puts, it's in the ethics tenets that there will be under the guidelines that it's part of the professional responsibility to actively recruit and hire a diverse staff throughout the organizations. So from that perspective, where do you see it as a federal as opposed to a local issue? Okay, so let me give you an example. So if you pulled this out, because I knew we were going to talk about this, if you look under tenant 11, okay, under the guidelines, and this is one of the things that ICMA is proposing to change. And there's a very specific reason why they're proposing to change this. The current guideline says under 10 and 11, equal opportunity, all decisions pertaining to appointments, pay adjustments, promotions, and discipline should prohibit discrimination because of race, color, religion, sex origin, sex orientation, political affiliation, et cetera, et cetera. So, so this is the traditional American civil rights perspective that ideally we're promoting equality of opportunity in a colorblind society, okay? Now, colorblind is a trigger word today right now also. So I were to say colorblind, people would attribute to me, oh, that's, he's team red. But the challenge with it is colorblind is where our civil rights law is based on. So you can't say, you know something, I'm gonna base my decisions on hiring or on someone's race, or I'm gonna base it on someone's gender. That's illegal, according to civil rights. That's the federal government who pretty much is the caretaker of our civil rights. They're the ones to a large extent, states play a role, but the federal government is the one that kind of takes care of preserving the civil rights found in our constitution. Local governments don't do that. We support it, uphold it, but we don't interpret it and we don't change it from time to time. So the challenge is DEI, a lot of DEI agree with. So in the provision of services, those should be done equitably. Just because there's a poor neighbor versus the neighborhood versus a rich neighborhood, we should be providing services equally to those neighborhoods. If you want to call that equity, I agree with that. Totally agree with that. Where it gets sticky, Nancy, 
is when we start talking about human resources. So when you start talking about hiring and firing and discipline and promotion, what DEI, as far as I can tell, based on what ICMA has been promoting and my understanding of DEI from that perspective, is that you do make decisions based on race and on gender and on, on a number of these other characteristics that the civil rights law currently say you're not supposed to do. So what they want to do is they want to get rid of, they want to change equal, they want to remove equal opportunity from the guidelines. And, and they have to, that sticky, because equity, at least in the sense that they're using, is a quality and outcome. Yeah. So you look at different groups and you say, okay, how are different groups doing? And if one group is falling further behind, you take proactive steps to make sure that group catches up to the rest of the group. Right. That's basing your decisions to a certain extent on the things that our civil rights say a law you're not supposed to base it on. Does that make sense? Yes. The conflict we have right now. So, I mean, I Go ahead. I tend to agree with Matt to a point that the influence that we have as managers in the diversity and inclusivity space is more intrinsic to our organization than it is external to our community in the sense that the federal government, state government may be more, maybe better equipped to move the needle in, in, in a positive direction on a broader stage. But I will say that one way that I've tried to address this and advance those initiatives in my own communities that I've managed is by assigning the premium to diversity to say, look, we know that this is a meritocracy and decisions about hiring or contract awards, whatever it might be, are going to be based uh, on their face value, on the quality of the applicant or the experience they bring to the table or the contract or whatever it might be. But you can recognize, celebrate the importance of having a diverse workforce and diversity of an opinion and people that come from different backgrounds and have different cultural experiences that that the impact that has on your organization is a rising tide that, that influences all ships. So we have to be able to understand that. I'm not suggesting that we award contracts solely on the basis of the gender or the diversity of the organization that we're considering the award to. Of course not. But I'm saying that there is, it is a variable to consider just like all other variables. And Matt's right. It used to be, I think, in a societal position of a progressive societal position to say, we don't see color. Now it's more of a, it seems like in some circles, a societal position to say, we only see color, or we're going to see it in every influence and every nuance of our day to day. Where we have to live as managers is in between that space. No, we don't only see color. No, we don't not see color. We understand the value and recognize the value that a diverse workforce brings to our organization. On the community side of things, while we may not be in a position to legislate civil rights in the same way the federal government is, we certainly can reach out to the communities of color and understand, or attempt to understand better what it is that motivates them. What are they concerned about? How does that vary from what your other demographics experience on a day-to-day. And that is, is a meaningful tool to us in helping frame our policy recommendations. I know that in my township, which is a, a incredibly diverse in very good ways, I'm, depending on the neighborhood I'm in, some people may view a certain policy decision in a certain light and others may view it in another light. Having that awareness, having that understanding better equips me as manager 
as I'm forming policy recommendations to my elected officials, because they will have a very, very thorough representation and understanding of how that's going to impact their constituents. I agree with Ryan what Dave said. I guess one of the, just to elaborate back to my, my earlier, more esoteric comments I was making about the ideas. And one of the challenges we're defining people by groups. And I think that's always a challenge when you say, okay, the such and such community, the such and such community. And as those communities become equal in size and influence, you're creating a zero sum game, which I think is a, is we're entering risky territory here where you're going to say, okay, I'll give you an example. So the, as I understand, and I haven't read up a lot on this, but there's a case that's coming before the Supreme Court. I think it has to do with Harvard University's admissions of Asians. Right. Okay. So uh, Asians, I guess, have been as a group, have been very successful in academically. And so Harvard apparently has taken proactive steps to not admit that into school because they're trying to diversify the rate. Okay. That's exactly what I'm talking about. So as that becomes more pronounced, the more we create a zero sum game where you're pitting one group against another, we'll end up tearing each other apart. So you've got to figure out a way of unifying our community around something. And I'm always uncomfortable with, I understand it and I understand the, the value of it. There is some value to it. But if we're consistently seeing individuals as a member of a group, I think you're in territory that can really be problematic as opposed to seeing individuals as individuals. But just because they're gender or race doesn't determine whether they should or shouldn't be advanced, promoted, disciplined, et cetera. Yeah. It's very hard for me just to zip it up on this subject because of the HR emphasis. So I, I want to say just a couple of things that I did express a viewpoint in the newsletter I sent out last Friday, where this has really come together to me in the Venn diagram in that sweet spot is around safety. So that if you have people within your community that are from other cultures, and I can speak very personally as a female coming into a field, I mean, I first job I had, I'd how many male consultants there were that I was working around every day and having to adjust culturally. So where I see safety coming into play is within the community or within the organization is that if somebody's going to feel psychologically safe, you know, whether they're living there or they're working there, you have to create a culture around to, to help that happen. And it could be that it's the neighboring community that you need to build relationships with because safety, it depends on our interdependency on one another. In order to build those relationships, you need that diversity. You need the perspectives. You need the way that you work. So I would make it from a business case, first and foremost, this idea that we're going to hire this person over the other person because of their race or their gender doesn't cut it. It just doesn't cut it anymore. There's too many ways to, to recruit and to create qualified candidate pools. But the second piece of this, which is a little bit of a softer angle, and I understand that it doesn't rise to the top right away, but it's in these tenets, is that we are to advocate for the development of professionals in the field. And that just doesn't happen unless you take someone that has great potential, but they don't have the experience and the credentials. It's also how you grow them. It's actually bringing somebody up through the organization, sending them to professional training. They may not be the same level of what you'd hire competitively on the market. 
But if they bring something to that job that within five years they could get there or somewhere where you need them to be, then under these tenets, the way I understand it is that they're that part of the ethical responsibility is to bring people through and up so that we have a more diverse profession for in my mind, in my language, in my sweet spot is that we all feel more safe and comfortable within the culture of local government. But from, from other standpoints, you can come at it. Everybody has their different reasons why they think one aspect or another is important. But I do think DEI, just to go right back to the beginning, it's interesting to me that we're talking about it under this idea of neutrality. So to your point, Matt, you could say, how do you be neutral? Okay, so as a manager, I think what the idea is you have to be proficient in the different perspectives of DEI, why folks are for it, why they're against it, what is it, why, what are the points that some people view as good and bad. You have to be proficient and you have to be able to present that to your elected body. That's the textbook answer to that. The, the real line answer is you have to navigate those waters carefully. It's not an either or. There's elements of DEI that are very good and you've articulated some of them. I think those are very important. There's also areas of DEI that are very challenging and can really create some problems. So it's understanding where those are versus where the areas of agreement. I'll tell you a quick story. So you guys know Mark Ott. So Mark Ott is the executive director of ICMA. And I was in a meeting with him and he was speaking about his early experience in ICMA, which I guess probably would have put him in like in the 1980s probably. And he talked about how his early experiences were pretty rough. I mean, he was ignored in a lot of places. He was felt alienated. And I think made a really compelling argument for how things were very difficult. He's an African-American man, by the way. Yes, yes. Oh, right. like how, yeah, for those who don't know, Margon is an African-American man. But at the same time, I was heartened by the fact is he's the ICMA executive director today. I mean... The fact is we have made a great deal of progress over the decades. I think we need to always remember that. When you, societal changes don't happen overnight. As much as most of us would like to see these things happen much quicker, some of these things take time to just evolve and people's attitudes have to change and, and it takes some time. So it, it, pretty much the way the law has been, is it imperfect as it is, the idea of equality of opportunity, DEI is a relatively new thing, at least at least the way they're talking about it now, so it's 10 or 15 years. We have seen progress under the idea of equality of opportunity. I think there's some people who understand we feel like it's not happening fast enough, but I think we do need to recognize there's been a lot of progress. We had a U.S. president who was African American. We now have a woman who's a vice president. And, I, and so it, do we have a long ways to go? Of course we do. But I think society doesn't change in one generation. These things take time. That's a critical point is that change is incremental and it really does have a lot of impact on our ability as managers to be neutral because we're not in a society anymore where incrementalism is appreciated or is celebrated as it should because those are the changes that last the ones that are done in a deliberate space that are the ones that are done with fully informed decision making the ones that are done in a manner that as that laboratory of democracy, to use that federalism analogy, where as a local government, we can say, okay, look, we're going to try this course of action. And hey, if it doesn't work, dial it back and try another alternative. We're going to experiment a little bit. Maybe it doesn't get you to your destination as quickly as you want to be. I talked about the plastic bag analogy. But had we have taken a more elaborate, deliberate, and incremental approach 
to that specific initiative, I think our outcome would have been much different in that township that I was a part of. So to be able as managers to act as a, a little bit of a, a buffer to, to be able to slow that process down and between the elected officials who want to, in some cases, be reactionary because they're getting a lot of pressure from their electorate, their constituents, to be able to say to them, okay, look, we know you where you want to go and we understand we'll help you get there, but give us the latitude that we need so that you could be more successful in what you do. That uh, being neutral in, in that capacity and being incremental as managers is a key part of why the council manager for government is the only way to fly, in my opinion, and is really as, as, as well-suited as it is to local government. No, just, I, I, he said it much better than I, he, Dave said exactly what I was trying to convey, but it, I would just add one other thing. Our very form of government is designed to go slow. So our framers understood a lot of the things that we're talking about, and they understood that societal change for it to be lasting for in a free society and get people to do it voluntarily, oftentimes, fortunately or unfortunately, change happens incrementally. So our very system, we have to advertise, and then we have a, de a debate, and there has to be this, and there has to be that, it has to go to this committee and that committee. And the purpose of that is to take people along slowly and deliberately so that we can all understand and get on board. This very quick, fast, let's try and make the change overnight. Societies just don't react well in general to that. So as frustrating as it may be sometimes, the best way to change society is slow and over time. Mm -hmm. Right. What I t tell my board in those contexts is say, look, what good is a law that requires I don't know, ducks to wear pants. If the next course of action is going to be a new board ousts you and repeals the duck pants law. I mean, it's because there's always a reaction. And oftentimes in policymaking, that reaction, it's not like Newton's laws where it's equal and opposite. That reaction is, uh, met, uh, is a lot more fervent and is a lot more mobilized than the action that precipitated it. So having that knowledge and understanding, and again, emphasizing, importance of incrementalism and also neutrality in that, in that space is really key in advancing these legislative initiatives. Yeah, it really is to me, it, it has been an eye-opener to see really how involved managers can be in policy development. It's a, it can be, I think, a very exciting career that maybe young professionals don't always see. And I want to just maybe as we shift in, in our closing question is to hear what you have to say about what it is that you think it is about this profession that should excite, excite young people to explore. And if you want to say anything more about just what it means to be neutral, does that mean for a young person or young professional listening to this, that they can't, they cannot stand for anything, that, that they have to be silent? Sure. I mean, I think the answer to the question about what makes this profession particularly exciting is that it provides a, a, an individual with an opportunity to make headway on a lot of these issues that they feel passionately about, perhaps not in the way of the advocate or the activist that Matt was talking about earlier in the podcast, because that is oftentimes just discussed. It, it certainly is a necessary function to affect change in society. You need the advocates, you need the activists, 
But you also need the other part of it. You need the policy drafters, the, the administrators, the bureaucrats, dare I say it, in order to really craft the legislation the policy that's needed in order to sustain that, not just implement it, but sustain it and be able to adapt to the changing times. Because what is considered activism of the day in 10, 15, 20 years from now, I know we kind of are in this habit now as a society of judging history based on today's, through today's lens, but of course, we know we can't do that. In 20 years, people are going to be looking back at us saying, what were those troglodytes thinking in 2022 when they were only looking at EI through this lens and not through that lens, whatever the issue the sure is. So, I mean, we have to, what is exciting about it is on the bureaucratic side, it's not as sexy as the activist side, but it is just as meaningful and oftentimes more meaningful. So we have to be able as a profession, as a consortium, either through the Pennsylvania Municipal League or APMM or ICMA to convey that to the next generation. When I go to graduate schools and talk about to MPA students about local government and the opportunities that exist, I always start with the same question. How many of you are thinking about local government as a career? And most of the time I get no hands. Occasionally I'll get one, but they usually conflate nonprofit with local government. And then when I tell them what it is, oh, I don't know. That. So there's no interest. Everybody wants to go into these activism roles. We have to be able to really be able to deliver the message of why what we do is just as, in some cases, more critical, more meaningful than the activist advocacy, although there's certainly a need for both. Can you stand publicly for anything? I think this is where ICMA, some of that, that tenant seven has got to maneuver a bit, quite frankly, because for them to, for the code of ethics to say, as a manager, you cannot participate in federal, state, and no donating to candidates, no advocating for them. I can't put a yard sign in front of my house to support, I don't know, my sister running for school board in Fort Myers, Florida. How does that influence the community's ability to look at me as an impartial, neutral manager? I don't see that nexus. And a lot of the younger generation is looking at these laws, these tenants, like that woman that you spoke to at the conference saying, this is draconian. I'm a person. I feel, I'm a sentient being. I feel strongly about these issues. I should have a way that I could advocate within reasonable confines. No question about that. But there's no way that if I support a, I don't know, what's not Democratic or Republican, Jimmy McMillan, who was the, the rent is too damn high party. He ran for president a couple of years. If I want to be the rent is too damn high party and I want to put a sign in my yard, is that really, are people going to look at me and say, oh, geez, Dave, he can't be a neutral manager. He's all about Jimmy McMillan. I don't know that there's a real connection. I mean, is there a superficial one? Can you make that argument? Sure, I think you can, but we're doing so at the risk of alienating an entire generation of people who are really feel profoundly about these social issues, want to be able to have their influence in that space, but also recognize that there's a need to be neutral. There's a need to be to have that professional dissonance between the public policy makers and the administrators that is so critical to our role as professional managers. I think this is probably where we have the most disagreement because I think what- In our last two minutes. I think what Dave <laughs> said- <laughs> seconds, Matt. Himself. Yeah. So on the one hand, he says, we need to be able to allow managers to freely express their political views, yada, but then we're also going to be politically neutral. But so I don't see how you can do that. I will say that- Oh, because of talking... a economy, but, but go ahead. If I were talking to a young person, the pros of the job are significant. So here you have a job that every day you get to be involved in 
helping to shape and form and implement all of the great things in your community. You're dealing with police one day and fire the next and planning the next day and water and sewer over. I mean, so it's really, you're exposed to a bunch of different things and every day is different. So it's an exciting, interesting, stimulating profession that exposes you to a lot of things and you get to all do that maybe in the community you live in. So those are all the pros. I do think that one of the challenges we're dealing with is do we have a culture of activism or a culture of service? And I think there's a certain level of narcissism involved in this. I should be able to express this. I should be able to do this. I want to be able to do that. How about what's good for the community? How about maybe this is the John F. Kennedy coming out in me. We do owe some things to our community to help it make it better. So do we want to be servants of the community or do we want to be advocates in the community? And I think if you want to be an advocate in the community, and that's why you go into city management, you're going to become a red manager or a blue manager. It's just going to happen that way, or at least you're going to be viewed that way. And the thing that scares me to death in the future is if ICMA becomes viewed as red or blue, you're going to end up having red states say, if ICMA is viewed as blue, why are we want to go to a strong mayor form? We don't want this council manager form is a Democrat thing or whatever the combination. So, so the political neutrality, this, this sense of service, this culture of service is necessary for the city manager plan to actually work. Once you get away from the culture of service to the culture of activism, the city manager plan is going to break down and they'll end up becoming like a chief of staff position where you become the political organizer of whoever is the elected officials at the time. And I don't entirely disagree with that, but my point is more nuanced, which is it's not just a matter of activist versus administrator or bureaucrat versus policymaker. It is much more complex. We are complicated people. We're systemic beings in a systemic world. And to just say, hey, look, when you're a manager, and I see talks out of both sides of the mouse and their tenants, they say, look, you're free to advocate for issues. I mean, one of their tenants talks about that. You are, you have every right to feel passionate just like everybody else. But then they say, whoa, but you can't under any circumstances in any capacity provide any kind of support pecuniary or otherwise to people that are running for office. Then, I mean, that's a little disingenuous and that's a very big inhibitor to somebody who wants to, who's considering the profession. Maybe they have that sense of community that you're talking about now, which is critical of people that are in our roles. They have that passion for public service. They want to serve their community. They want to ask what they can do for their country. But on the other side of that coin, they're also thinking if I want to donate to the, the rent is too damn high party or whatever, who's running for president, then 10 bucks, 20 bucks, then I should be able to do that. Or what if my wife puts a political sign in the front yard? Can she do that? And I say, look, it's not me. It's my wife. I mean, these are just not black and white issues. The area is much more gray, particularly as we become much more polarized. But you're absolutely right that the perception is challenging to address because as a society, we are very tribal, more so now, perhaps we've been at least in our recent history. And we're saying, okay, he's advocating for this. Or she's advocating for that. They're team red, they're team blue. And that's just the way it is. Unfortunately, we just can't have that kind of mentality anymore and expect to be attractive to the best and the brightest that are coming up and that are looking towards this profession as career opportunity. I think you two are just excellent examples of what makes the field 
very attractive. And that is that you both have very strong values. You're both articulate about views and you are both, if I could use the word passionate, I think it's clear that you care deeply at root. I think of the expression that I actually learned from Peter Hawkins, that you're working in service of the whole. And that is really where the challenge is that you take what it is that you bring, and then you try to shape it within that environment that's in service to the whole, and that you're able to do that. You have to be able to understand both sides. And I also think you both are typically not typical, but you exemplify that sort of high level of competence in your willingness to serve, which I know both of you are serving or have served or thinking about serving in some cases of high offices in these organizations, which are shaping the profession in the future. So it is a, it is a rich subject and there's a whole lot of areas that I think we weren't able to really drill down into, but I will put in the show notes links to not only Matt's articles, but the code of ethics from ICMA so that others can look at those notes. And I hope if anyone listening to the podcast has some thoughts or comments, there's a whole bunch of other people who are going to listen and say, but they didn't talk about, and there's so much to talk about. So I want to just give you a chance to say anything in closing. And I'll just say right now, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us because it's not an easy area to, to put out there to the world. So it was great that you were willing to do it. Go ahead, Dave. Sure. Thanks. And thanks, Nancy. I appreciate giving us this platform here. And I will say, just again, to reiterate, Matt and I are shoulder to shoulder on 99.99%. We are not by any stretch kind of polar opposites on this issue. I am completely in his camp on a lot of these, these points. The subtlety where we disagree, although it is profound, I'll acknowledge candidly, that Matt is in the majority. I mean, ICMA, to their credit, puts this out regularly. It says, look, you guys want to change as membership, 10 at 7. And time and again, the answer is no. This is something we feel very strongly about. I know I'm a minority opinion in this. I understand that. It doesn't mean I'll be any less vocal, but I, I do want to say thanks to you. Thanks to Matt. I was happy to be a part of this and I learned a lot. It was a, a great experience. It's always fun to, to chat with Dave. Dave, I think is a date is coming in a different generation than me into the profession. And I think whether you realize it or not, Dave, I think your perspective, um, reflects much more close to your generation. So a lot of the younger managers coming on are much more closer to where Dave is than where I am. And I do agree. I think we're pretty much in lockstep for most of the, what we talk about. The Dave is right. And I appreciate him mentioning that the nuance of things, this is much more art than science. So. What I'm trying to illustrate is what the ideal is, what you're trying to shoot for, what the goal should be. But it's in practice, it's a little bit like sausage making. So it's a little bit messy, but thank you, Nancy, for the opportunity. And it was, it's a stimulating conversation. Yeah. Thank you both. I look forward to seeing you soon sometime where, wherever I don't know, but it's always a pleasure to hang out with you. So thanks. That's great. Thank you again. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you, Matt. See you.